Welcome to the In Common Podcast. This is Stefan Partolo. Today's Insight episode is from full episode 32, our interview with Meredith Niles. Meredith is a multidisciplinary scientist working in social, ecological, and food systems. Currently, she is an assistant professor in food systems and policy at the University of Vermont in the Department of Nutrition and Food Sciences. In the clip, Courtney asks Meredith about her advocacy for open access publishing, why it is important, and resources for those looking for more information. This is the In Common Podcast. I know that you're super passionate about open access. And I think you you touched a little bit on why in that answer, but I would I want to hear more from you about how you got into that and where you want to see that go. Mm-hmm. So open access was not something I really thought about until I went to publish my first research article, my first dissertation article as a grad student. There were sort of two things that happened to me in graduate school that really led me down this um, passion that I have for this issue. The first was that um, my cousin actually was diagnosed my first year of graduate school with a really rare brain cancer. Um, and if you've had anyone that's you know been affected by a, a, a disease or a public, um, public health threat like that, especially as being an academic, you realize like we have access to a lot of information. And my cousin's doing great. He's, um, he's been in remission for a long time now. But what I realized was that because I was at an academic institution, I could very easily go and start looking up all the research about his condition and the studies that have been done and the survivability and the technologies that could help, help him. Um, and what I also realized was because the National Institutes of Health had adopted an open access policy a couple of years before that happened, that my family members could too. Mm. So the National Institutes of Health um, have a policy that has since sort of um, governed the direction of a lot of other federal agency policies that within one year of publication of your research funded by the National Institutes of Health, it has to go into PubMed Central, the database for um, for that. And lots of stuff are in PubMed Central now, not just health research. But, you know, I sort of realized like I was an incredible place of privilege because I was at an academic institution and I could very easily start looking at this research, not only having the scientific background to sort of broadly understand it at least as well, but just like literally having access to the information. And so that just started me thinking a lot about why and how we tie up knowledge and who has access to that knowledge. And, and I actually truly see this as a, a, an equity issue and a social justice issue. And um, what happened next was when I went to start to publish my own research, I realized that some of the journals that I was thinking about publishing it in were not going to be journals that the farmers I was working with would actually be able to see their own, like the, the, the results of the work with these farmers was going to wind up behind a paywall where farmers were going to have to pay 40 bucks to see it, you know, and obviously I was going to share the article with them, but just the principle of that, like I really started to think about that a lot more carefully. Um, Like what are we doing in academia? You know, in my case, I had five years of 
public funding. I was completely funded by the National Science Foundation um, under a graduate research fellowship and a National Science Foundation IGERT for my, my research. So I was entirely publicly funded and then took all this public money, did this work with application for agriculture and climate change in, in a county I was living in, and then was going to turn around and publish it in a journal that they were going to have to pay money to see it. Like, I just really started to think about the, the model that, that is embedded in sort of scientific um, publishing and really started to think about that. And I, so I published my first dissertation chapter in PLOS One, which is an open access publisher. Um, uh, I'm sorry to say I did not publish all of my dissertation articles open access, and there's lots of reasons why that happened, but I have since made a pledge that all of my work is open access. Um, either through an explicit publication in an open access journal or through making the um, peer reviewed version um, publicly available in a, a scholarly repository. I also no longer review for Elsevier or any Elsevier journal. Um, I won't serve on their editorial boards. Um, there's a, a number of people, um, thousands of scientists who've made that pledge now as well. I could talk about why Elsevier in particular, uh, as opposed to other publishers, but but I think the big picture here for me is I think when we actually sit down to think about this model, most of us will realize like something is wrong. Um, I think there's a lot that needs to change in scientific and academic publishing. And, and at the end of the day, it's really us. It's us as scientists who are giving our copyright to for-profit publishers in most of the cases. And so I just have a real problem with that. You know, if we're the ones doing the research and it's our hard work and our government funding and our writing and our students that have written this, that have spent the time to create this knowledge, to synthesize it, and to try to advance scientific understanding. Why should we ever sign a copyright agreement that gives all of that to a for-profit publisher? That just doesn't make sense to me. Um, and I don't think it makes sense to most academics. I think we're just embedded in a world of, of publishing that um, has for a very long time relied on this model. And I think there's great opportunity for, for researchers and scientists to take back their own work and to remove it from those systems. Um, but really, it was, it was my uh, personal experience with a public health issue or, or a cancer issue, as well as then my engagement with applied people that really made me start to think about this. And, and then I became um, really active in advocacy. I did a lot of lobbying, actually, at both the state of California level and the federal level to um, pass open access legislation requiring publicly funded work to be made available um, that would just circumvent the entire sort of for-profit publisher issue um, if there was a piece of legislation that government-funded work had to be made available. Um, I've continued to advocate for these policies at academic institutions like the University of California that has an open access policy now. Harvard um, has a policy and I'm working on one um, at UVM as well. So it's a, it's a topic that I just feel really passionately about. And especially since my graduate or my postdoctorate work started to move into the realm of um, uh, low income countries and working with smallholder farmers at the at the sort of forefront of climate change and food security, I've seen that in a whole different light now as well, knowing that um, who can't see the research has huge impacts on capacity for researchers in low income countries as well. Yeah, thanks, Meredith. I, I feel like you've definitely opened up my eyes to that as 
one of your students. So I appreciate that. And I'm wondering for people who are new to thinking about open access, do you have resources you could point people to or um, things people can do to learn more? There's so many resources. Um, so let's see. Um, a couple that are really helpful would be SPARC, the Scholarly Publishing and Academic Resources Coalition. They are a group of academic research libraries and they have lots of like FAQs and other great resources on their website. They also have a list of all of the libraries globally who have canceled their Elsevier subscriptions, which is I think really helpful for librarians. One thing that's um, for individual researchers that I think is really helpful is a site called Sherpa Romeo. And that site actually allows you as a researcher to look up individual journals and to understand what rights you do have based on the journal to share a preprint or a, a peer reviewed version of the author accepted manuscript. And actually more than 70%, I think it's 75% of research um, of, of journals allow some form of archiving um, in a repository of like an author's accepted manuscript, for example. So you may not be able to put the fully formatted nice publisher's PDF version on your website or in a scholarly repository, but chances are really good that you can put the accepted author's accepted manuscripts in, in the repository. And let's see, um, you know, the other thing that's really happening in this world too are, are preprints, the rise of preprints. And preprints, there's lots of, uh, like SOS Archive, you know, is probably the more obvious one for this audience. But BioArchive is getting lots and lots of um, new subscriptions. And so these are just like other ways of getting your work out there earlier. And most publishers also now allow for preprints. Um, but there's just a ton of stuff happening in this space. And in general, the forefronts of this work are happening more in the biomedical um, spaces. And I think there's a lot of opportunity for the social sciences to sort of um, come along and, and continue to learn about ways to make work more publicly available. Thanks for tuning in. If you are new to the podcast, feel free to explore our previous episodes on our website, www.incommonpodcast.org. They can also be found on just about any other podcast player. If you're on Twitter, you can connect with us there, where we share updates, new episodes, and blog posts associated with the podcast. Thanks again.